for you tonight. Well, tonight we are in Luke chapter 17, and this is going to be our final encounter in the Gospel of Luke. Um, last spring, we uh, spent a lot of time talking about the Passion Week as we were going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and then we talked about the time from the resurrection and, and after the resurrection from Luke and Acts. So in order to not be sort of redundant with what we did in the spring, and it hopefully is available, I think, still electronically to listen online, uh, we're going to wrap up here at Luke tonight. And then when we come back in January, we're going to start uh, walking through the Gospel of John. And that will take us all the way through the end of May when we conclude this season of uh, studies in the life of the church. So tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37, and, and it's going to be focused, it's the second focus on the kingdom of God, which is one of the great themes of the Gospel of Luke. It's talked about a lot. Jesus speaks about the kingdom a lot. And, and so we look at the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus. And these are two topics that as Christians should always be extremely near and dear to our hearts. But I think all too often for us as Christians, they aren't. Uh, it's easy to think of these uh, in an abstract way, a way that maybe we don't feel like has a lot of impact in our lives. And, and that's not the point at all. The point at all is that these are things that should be on our minds uh, and are critically important to the way we live our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be looking at two related segments. One is very short, just two verses that's directed to the Pharisees. And then the remainder of the passage we're going to look at tonight, the longer one, is one that's directed to the disciples, but obviously would have significant meaning to us as well as disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. So I'll begin by just reading the first two verses of our section tonight. It's Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, which relate to the Pharisees and the kingdom of God. Luke writes that being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, obviously, we're pretty late along the, the line of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's been talking about the kingdom of God pretty much from day one of his ministry, and yet here we are, and the Pharisees are asking him, when will the kingdom of God come? They have utterly missed the point of his teaching, and so Jesus' response is essentially, you know, it's in verse, begins in verse 20, right? He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. The point is, it's not going to look like what you're expecting. The reason the Pharisees are not seeing it is because they're, they have a certain picture of the kingdom of God, and, and it's wrong, right? It's not going to be a traditional earthly kingdom. It's not going to have you know, borders and flags and passports and all the things we think of as, as a traditional kingdom or country would have. And, and instead, he's going on to say, no, it's not in a specific location. You know, this, you know, on a map, okay, there's the kingdom of God, which, of course, they're expecting Israel to be the answer, that they would point to the map and say, oh, there's, there's Israel, that's the kingdom of God. He's saying, no, it's not in a specific location, right? That's why in verse 21, he says, you know, it's not, it's not here it is or, or there. It's neither here nor there in a specific location. He says, for behold, the kingdom of God is, is in the midst of you. It is already present in Jesus Christ. This is the point that they have missed. And, and if you go back and you replay a lot of the passages we have looked at in Luke, and even some we have not, you'd see 
You know, I think we talked about Luke chapter 4, verse 19. Jesus was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? The fact that the kingdom was present. Luke 9, 2, Jesus sends the 12 out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 10, 9, Jesus sends the 72 out, and, and they, he sends them to the places he's about to go to, and the message they're supposed to say is the kingdom of God has come near to you. Because Jesus is coming to the town. Then Luke 12, 31 says, Seek his kingdom, these things will be added to you. Luke 13, 18 and 19, and the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, starts tiny, grows big. The point, of course, is the kingdom is already here, it has begun, it was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ. Every believer in Christ is a citizen of God's kingdom. It's not some abstract concept in the far future for us. The kingdom of God is right here. It was right there in Christ and his followers. It is right here, Lakers Baptist Church, those who follow Christ. The kingdom is here. It is growing. Now, someday it will be completed. It will be perfected with Christ's return. Right? Theologically, we sometimes call that the consummation of the kingdom. What Scripture is teaching us, what Christ is teaching us, is that, is that when you talk about the kingdom of God, there is an already but not yet aspect of it. That's the way to think of it, right? The, the kingdom is already begun, but it is not yet as big as it is going to be, as the way it's going to be when Christ returns the second time. And so these two verses are really focused on the already, that these Pharisees have missed the point that the kingdom of God has already begun because they're seeing the signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom. They're seeing the healing. They're seeing the life transformation that marks the inbreaking of God's kingdom into a fallen world. And they've missed it completely. And then there is the not yet. And the next section we're going to read is focused on, on that not yet, what the kingdom is going to be when Christ returns. But before we talk about that longer section, I know we haven't gone very, talked for very long, but I want us to stop just for a few minutes and take a prayer time to pray specifically for the advance of God's kingdom right here in this community, in the neighborhoods around us in eastern Prince William County, to recognize, okay, God's kingdom is here, and our task, part of our appointed task, is to help grow the kingdom, to do the work of the kingdom. And so I'd like us just to take a few minutes to, to pray for the growth and the work of God's kingdom. So I'll start us off and then turn it over to any who feels led to pray, and then I'll close this up and resume the lesson in just a moment. Heavenly Father, what, a, what an important truth it is for us to realize that your kingdom is here, that we're not sitting around waiting for your kingdom. It's right here. And that we are citizens of your kingdom, Lord, and that that comes with both privileges and responsibilities, Lord. And so we, we pray that we would be faithful in our responsibilities, Lord, but we pray for your kingdom to grow and grow in this area, that your kingdom would push back the borders of the enemy, that people would come to know you, that new citizens would join your kingdom every day in the neighborhoods around us and in this county surrounding us. Lord, hear our prayers. Heavenly Father, there's so much darkness in the world around us. We see it on the news. We see it on social media. We see the darkness 
in the way people treat one another, in the way people live. We see loneliness. We have such theoretical connectivity through social media, Lord, and yet we see more and more how it makes people lonely and lost. Lord, there are people hurting around us, people who need your kingdom to come into their lives. Lord, there are no earthly man-made solutions to the brokenness and the lostness and the hurt and the isolation in the world around us. As much as we might try to wish for political or educational or organizational solutions, they can't handle the, the ultimate issue here, Lord. The only solution is for your kingdom to come into their lives. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful in doing the work of the kingdom, in realizing that it doesn't just go, you know, in, in, in a you know, massive wave by someone else, that the kingdom grows one person at a time, one touch, one contact, one helping hand, one kind word, one sharing of the gospel, one invitation at a time, Lord. Lord, help us to be faithful in doing the work of your kingdom. And understanding that that is one of our, that, that is at the height of our responsibilities as citizens of this kingdom, Lord. And what a blessing and privilege it is to be part of your kingdom. What a joy. And Lord, help us be faithful to share that joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now we get to the longer part of the message, which is targeted to the disciples. And again, I think there we should understand that there is applicable to us as disciples today. I'll go ahead and read it. It's lengthy, and then we can walk back through it and talk a bit. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So the message as Jesus turns to his disciples is to say that the Son of Man, right, starting in verse 22, the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to go away. He knows what's coming very, very soon. His crucifixion is coming. He knows there'll be a resurrection, but then he will depart them for a time. 
And he's saying, look, you're going to be longing to see me again. You're going to be longing for my return. But he's pretty explicit to them in verse 22 that it's not going to come in their lifetime. Right? The days are coming when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You're going to, you're going to desire to see Christ's return, and you're not going to see it. Right? And like I said, many have interpreted that to understand that he's basically saying it's not going to come in your lifetime. But he goes on in verse 23, and he, and he says, Look, I, I know that faithful Christians are going to be longing to see me again. Right? We're going to be longing for that because we know he's coming back, and so we're going to be eager, right? We're going to be, when is Christ going to return? And so he says, don't fall victim to people who are going to try and take advantage of this desire for Christ's return. People will be like, oh, Jesus is over there. Or, oh, Jesus is over there. Right? He says, don't go follow them. Right? If you hear that Christ is returned, it's a lie. Don't fall for it. This was not an uncommon belief in those days or you know, in the decades following this that you know, Christ had returned. Uh, you can almost get a sense, I think it's in Thessalonians, you get a sense that there might have been some concern amongst the Thessalonian Christians that they might have missed it. Uh, and Paul has to say, no, you, you didn't miss the event, trust me. Uh, because the point that Jesus is making is that when he comes back, it's not going to be in secret. Right? His first coming is kind of subtle. It's, it's in the the backwater of the world there in Israel, uh, certainly the focal point of God's activity to that point, but, but in a cultural sense, not a big deal, far remote from the power centers of Rome. You know, so nobody important by worldly standards noticed that much the first time Jesus was here. And he says, look, that's not going to be how it is when I come back. So you're not going to have to count on somebody to say, oh, Jesus is over there. You're going to know it. So he says, no matter, you know, and I think the point is, like, no matter what the signs are, the miracles are, we know elsewhere in Scripture that there'll be, there'll be a time when people come and, and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm just like Jesus. I'm Jesus. I can do these miracles. And the point is, it doesn't matter what miracles and signs they can do. They're not Jesus. And verse 24 tells us that when Christ returns, it's going to be unmistakable. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. When I hear this description of lightning flashing and, and lighting up the sky from one side to another, I mean, we occasionally get some decent lightning around here. Um, I'm willing to bet you get some decent lightning in Texas. When I was a kid, I, we always went in the summer to Kansas where my grandparents lived, and you got some spectacular Midwestern lightning there. Lightning such that uh, pitch black sky, and then just the lightning goes, and it is literally the whole sky turns white from one end to the other. That's the, the description that Jesus is invoking here, right? He, when Christ returns, it is going to be so unmistakable, there will be no question about what is going on, right? As the lightning flashes, lights up the sky, one side to the other. That's how clear it's going to be, right? It's not saying that Christ is going to look like lightning. It's saying that, that it's going to be so unmistakably clear, spectacularly visible to everyone in the world, they're going to know what happened. It will not be subtle. It will not be limited to one specific location the way his first coming was, where it was a specific physical place right here, right? When Christ returns, everyone is going to see it. Everyone is going to know it. But in verse 25, he says, before that happens, there's going to be some other things happen. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this 
generation, right? He's speaking here, of course, to the crucifixion. So then he wants to give us a little more information, more understanding about the return. And this is where we begin to realize, you know, as we study these passages and so many more in the Bible, we understand that anybody who says they have figured out when Christ is going to return, they are a fraud, right? They are a false prophet. Because he gives us two analogies to help us understand just how quick and unexpected the return of Christ is going to be. And he picks two examples from two specific times in the past, two eras in the past, each synonymous with just tremendous sin and debauchery, right? One, the era of Noah, one, the time of Sodom. So he looks at verse 26 and 27, he gives us an analogy to Noah, which, again, to a, to a Jewish person in those days, the, the days of Noah were a description, a euphemism for a really, really sinful time. And he says it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. Right? Everybody who wasn't Noah and his family were busy laughing at Noah. They were eating and drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage. Right? They were living their life completely oblivious to God. All kinds of sin, we all know that, right up until the flood began. And then, boom, a total wipeout. People were very satisfied in the days of Noah. They were very self-satisfied. They were comfortable with their sin. They were comfortable with their behavior. They thought Noah was a nut job. They certainly didn't care about God. And there are, I think, a lot of parallels you can draw to our modern era. right? How many people out there are very satisfied in their sin, very satisfied in their behavior, think that the average Christian is crazy and doesn't care less, couldn't care less about God? The second example, verses 28 and 29, describes Sodom and the judgment on Sodom, right? That in the, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. It doesn't talk about marrying and giving, being given and married. They weren't that big on that. But they were going about business. They were industry. They were farming, right? Living life. Again, boom, total wipeout. Again, you can draw parallels to our time, right? The satisfaction, the busyness, et cetera, et cetera. And the point is, there are no advance warning signs, right? It could be today. It could be 10,000 years from now. There are no detailed timetables to be decoded. There's no Bible code that points to any of this stuff. And none of this junk that's around in about every few years that, that comes up from different people. When Christ returns, it will be sudden. You will have no warning. Christians will have no warning and non-Christians will have no warning. It's just going to happen. So be prepared. Right? Verse 30 says that, that the return of Christ, the coming of Christ, what is frequently referred to in commentaries and theological terms as the parousia, which is just a way for people who went to seminary to show off that they know Greek. It really just means the coming of Christ, but you find that word used a lot in commentaries. It always kind of cracks me up. I mean, they really have no good reason to say parousia, but they do. Uh, it's going to work the same way. right? So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So the point is, it's going to happen. There's not going to be time to prepare, so live your life prepared. So verses 31 to 33 is really kind of expanding on this theme, right? This message is actually pretty straightforward, so we're going to get done real early tonight, so unless we have questions, which will probably be good. Uh, you know, when Christ, verses 31 to 33, when Christ comes, there's, there's not, you know, we're not going to hesitate. There's no delay. There's no, 
idea of holding on to this life. So don't live a life that has divided loyalty. These are the pictures he's kind of talking about here in verses 31 through 33 as he talks about, you know, the one who's got his stuff in the house and, and is, doesn't want to come, shouldn't come down to take it away, right? Or the, the turning back of Lot's wife. <coughs> or the, you know, the point is, don't live a life with divided loyalty. Don't live a life where you think, ah, I'll have a little bit of time to repair. I'll know it's coming. Then I'll get serious about Jesus. It's not going to work that way. It's not going to work that way. That when, when Christ returns, the season of grace will be over. The die will be cast, right? We will have been saved by having chosen Christ beforehand, or we will have not. And in these references to the farmer and the person working on the rooftop and, and things like that, he's just using well-known images of, of things where, you know, that happen quickly with no preparation. You know, he's borrowing images of, of what life is like, like when an invasion comes and, you know, you have to flee. And the point is when Christ returns, you've got to be already have decided. You have to have already chosen Christ. He gives us these pictures in 34 and 35 about, you know, where two people are together and, and one is taken, one is left. You know, people who are living together, who are working together, believers and non-believers side by side, that the harvest is coming. The harvest that Jesus talked about so often, right, the separation of the wheat and the tares, the separation of, of uh, 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 you know, the righteous and the unrighteous is going to come. And it's just going to come like that when Christ returns. And then verse 37, we get this very interesting, feels like a proverb kind of saying, when, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Right? Which is a very unattractive phrase. Uh, I've got to imagine it had some sort of proverbial nature to them. Uh, there is a little bit of discussion about, you know, what is this specifically emphasizing? Is emphasizing that, you know, because the question to me, when I read it, Right, he talks about one being taken, one left, and the question is, well, where are they taking? Right, they say where. He says where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So is that saying that believers are going to be inexorably drawn to Christ? I think that's kind of the message. That despite the fact it's this image of death, I think it's really talking about the way that the believers will be drawn to Christ when He returns. Um, May just be said talking about the way it's going to be incredibly obvious when Christ returns. That you know you got the you know because we've all seen the vulture circling around the in this case the roadkill. Uh, you know, unlike in in other parts of the country where it may be an animal that died of natural causes. In this case, it's always a roadkill that's got the the vulture circling around. And you see the vultures, and you know what's there. And I think you're saying you know we've had these. He's talked about the unmistakable sign of the return and the, you know, the lightning flash style where the whole world is going to see it, and so it's going to be unmistakable. You see that sign, you know where Christ is. Believers are going to be drawn to it. But it's a very strange proverb. Um, like I said, it's sort of an unattractive proverb if you as well. Um, but that's really, the I think, the essence of the message, right? He is, But it's interesting, he devotes such a long amount of time to make sure his disciples know this very, very basic message that he's going away, he's coming back. When he comes back, it's going to be incredibly unmistakable, so don't fall for anybody who's out there saying, I know when he's coming back, or, or oh, that's him over there. Don't, don't fall for any con man doing miracles and tricks, uh, anybody empowered by Satan to do miracles or tricks and to pretend they're Christ. 
but that when it comes back, it's going to be instantaneous, you know, just like that. Decision is already settled. So uh, the message, I think, for us as the church is really about the urgency of making sure that we treat the gospel with the urgency that it needs. Because for those who are not yet in Christ, for those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, at any moment when Christ returns, whether it is today or whether it is 10,000 years from now, for them, they will have had no warning right, of Christ's return. There's no notion of an 11th hour, oh, I tell it's coming now, I'll get serious about religion. You know, none of this end is near stuff is going to work out. It's just over for them, right? Judgment, damnation. And so for us who are in Christ, this should be giving us urgency to say, you know, there's not going to be necessarily a chance to repent when the time comes. And of course, we know for all of us, right, life is a gift on a daily basis. And so there needs to be an urgency about the gospel that we sometimes maybe lack because we're like, oh, you know, we live in the first world. Health is pretty good, right? We, that person seems pretty healthy. They've probably got years from now. So maybe it's not that big a deal to introduce them to Jesus Christ. But the message is, whether whether you know death takes them or whether Christ returns, in either case, it, one or the other is going to happen to every single person on this earth, and it's not always on the timetable we plan or expect. And there has to be an urgency about sharing the gospel. So let me take a, a pause here for questions or discussion, and then we'll have some time for prayer. Yes. Awesome. Because, um, Share it. You know, as you go about thinking about sharing the gospel, um, you know, I think there's always going to be one, one people. And Bobby and I in church, we had we had a day with us in that um, we both on occasion had opportunity to talk to you. He was pretty resistant to the need of the life to answer. And I've been out all the time just sat down and got on top of the street. He told me in that conversation, we will do the next conversation with him, but he just couldn't get into the city. You know, I think that was his problem. And so, we did a conversation with Tom and I on our time. A couple, three months later, he was on I said, I need to go talk to him. This, this coming weekend, I will go talk to him. And make sure. Thursday morning, he got up. He was gone. Don't wait. It's weekend. And that's really, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Because that's really at the essence of this notion of don't, you know, if you're working on your rooftop, don't. Don't go down the stairs and then go back in the house and get your stuff and things like that because you don't know that there's, there's not going to be time for that. Yeah, one of the one of the blessings and one of the challenges of first world life is we're just not we don't get the same kind of frequency of we have a greater we have a false confidence in the belief that tomorrow is definitely coming that uh, you don't always have. Right. Yeah. When I lived in Minnesota, I was driving on the 
because at that point there's nothing more that can be done. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's No, right, right. Because there's always there are all will always be more people in our lives who need to hear the gospel. No, I haven't heard of that either. What I'd like to do, uh, if there are no other either questions or things you'd like to share, I don't want to cut off because we have time. Uh, what I'd like to do is just take some time to pray here. Um, pray silently or pray out loud for those in our lives who need to hear the gospel. <laughs> Uh, and just pray for us, not only those of us present, but really for our community of faith to have that sense of urgency about the gospel, uh, for the boldness to share, uh, and the and the, the the sensitivity to do it in a relational manner, like Joe's talking about. So again, I'll start get, it, get open it up, and then uh, please pray out loud or silently as you feel led, uh, and then we'll close in a few minutes. Heavenly Father, this passage reminds us that life is uncertain. We 
surely do not know what tomorrow will bring. Will it bring our departure, the departure of someone we love? Will it bring the return of Christ, the glorious coming of your Son? Lord, it reminds us that we have a responsibility, that we who know the truth, who enjoy the love and the forgiveness that we have in Christ, that there are people in our lives, in each of our lives, who have not experienced that love, that grace, that forgiveness, who have not experienced new life in Christ. So, Lord, hear our prayers for those we know or those we encounter as we go about our lives who need to hear the gospel, Lord. Hear our prayers for them that you would prepare their hearts and minds for the gospel and hear our prayers for boldness and sharing. Heavenly Father, work in our hearts, not just our hearts gathered here tonight, but the hearts of this, your people. Work in us the urgency and the boldness, the sensitivity and care to share the great good news that we have received, Lord, the great good news that gives us hope that we are loved, that is a source of our joy, that brings us peace. Lord, amidst this difficult season for many, this hectic season for all, Lord, help us to be the salt and the light. Help us to shine the light of Christ into the lives of every person that we encounter, people we work with, people we go to school with, people we encounter out in public. Lord, give us the courage, the boldness, the sensitivity to share with yet one more person, whether that becomes our first person or our 10,000 and first person, Lord. The urgency to know that this mission will not be done until your son returns. And that in the interim, we have work to do. Help us to be faithful in doing that work. And not just covering up the light, saving it, hoarding it for ourselves. This is a beautiful time of year, a time of year when many minds turn toward the spiritual, or at least are open to the question of what is this all about. Help us to be quick with an answer that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.